It's Film Friday, so it's time to stretch out those hammies, grab your running shoes, because that boy Jared Maguire sure can run. Folks, all you cinephiles, film nerds, etc. Thank you so much. Welcome back to another episode of Flicks and Scripts with Jay Starks. My name is Jay Starks. Let's uh, let's just get into it. Hopefully, you kind of know what's happening here. If this is your first episode, you just decided to randomly click on one. Just want to give you a little quick breakdown. I'm Jay Starks. I am a working actor, uh, independent filmmaker. I write, direct, produce, and I am a professional on-set dresser for like, you know, commercials, feature films, things of that nature. So yeah, that's my experience in this lovely art form. And this is my podcast in which we discuss movies, of course. So uh, if this is your first time listening, then I I divide each show into two segments, what I call my pre-production segment. That is where I essentially give you guys, the listeners, any background information, fun tidbits, trivia, things of that nature about the actual film that I'm going to watch for the first time. I'll give a breakdown of who's involved, things that they might have done, and my expectations going into said film. Just for the record, I don't look at any other reviews. I don't listen to it. I don't read any articles or any uh, interviews from any of the cast or crew members. So I just go in fresh eyes. Occasionally, I might watch a trailer, but oftentimes they kind of suck, to be completely honest with you. you know, they got to try to bring people in. So I'm not a big, big trailer person. But yeah, that's essentially what happens in the pre-production segment, the first segment. That's going to be roughly about 10 minutes. That's what you are listening to right now. Uh, we'll do an intermission and oftentimes that'll be something, you know, we're either talk about an upcoming episode or something, you know, inspirational, maybe even if I have any friends or if I have any projects, then that'll be when I kind of plug that in. And then after that, I come back for what I call the post production segment. And that is as soon as I finish watching the film, I immediately go in and record is unscripted is fresh from my brain and nothing's written down. And it's essentially just doing a breakdown of uh, post-production, production design, sound design, story, acting, writing, the whole nine. And then I'll give my opinion on what I felt about it. If it's watchable, if you should watch it, if I will watch it again, etc. So that's a little quick little catch up in case this is your first episode. Thank you so much for clicking on my face and the title <laughs> and let's get started. Okay. So I figure I could, I could give a little uh, spiel on what this particular podcast is about for this one, because there's not a lot of introduction you have to do for the show that I not show the film I will be reviewing. It's mission impossible dead reckoning part one part uno. Uh, so I don't think it really needs a whole lot of introduction, you know, So Mission Impossible was a TV series. I believe it was in the 60s. I hope I'm not wrong on that. Uh, As I mentioned, I I try not to get too much information. So sometimes I had to watch out what I click. But yeah, Mission Impossible was a TV series. And like I said, I believe it was in the 60s, maybe 70s. And Tom Cruise, the Tom Cruise, actually 
was the, I guess, the first person that I believe that created a film from it titled Mission Impossible and has since spun this, I believe it's seven films now of Mission Impossible franchise that is, I got to be honest, it's amazing. I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not the biggest fan of oh tired franchises so to speak you know uh like dragging things out unnecessarily like the harry potter franchise or whatever you know they split the last two movie the last book up over two films just to i feel to kind of like get some extra money from people but I don't feel as though splitting it did any justice to either one of them. Granted, it was a lot of material in that last book, but I feel as though that split was just kind of a money grab situation. So I'm hoping this isn't the case for part one of Dead Reckoning, you know? So anywho, so yeah, like I was saying, Mission Impossible is based off of a 60s TV series and then Tom Cruise came and create well he didn't create it excuse me he was the first star i believe he was the producer with his uh producing partner at that time paul le wagner i believe is her name so they did mission possible and that was directed by mr brian de palma which all you cinephiles would definitely know they've had i you know one of the things about the mission impossible series that i love is that they have consistently had some of in my opinion, great directors. I I feel as though I don't know what it is about this particular series, but it always attracts great directors. You know, the first one was Mr. Brian De Palma. Uh, John Woo did the second one, which was the the first one was the first one. Like, I think that's what truly established. Tom Cruise already had a bit of a name by then, but that truly was like whoa it was like taking so you know you had 007 James Bond character which had this pomp and this classiness yes he was a womanizer which you know is a whole different thing but I feel as though Mission Impossible was the hip cousin of the spy world so to speak that's what i felt when i first watched i was like whoa that's cool with the face thing and the gum against the glass like i still remember that film so much it was so cool to me but brian de palma kicked ass on that film anyway flash forward uh and i had to look it up wikipedia right now so flash forward four years it looks like 2000 john woo directed mission impossible 2 Saw that one. That Thandie Newton was in that one. She did a pretty great job. It had this exotic feel. That was, to me, was the cool hair Tom Cruise. He grew his hair out and it was all flippy. I was like, I like this look. This is kind of a cool look. It's a look that he doesn't do that often, which is why I think I kind of liked the character design, so to speak. I don't know if that was a choice from him or Mr. John Woo. I'm not quite sure. I do know that there were birds like slow motion doves flying which was a john woo thing 100 percent. also produced by tom cruise and his producing partner at that time then it looks like six years later mission impossible 3 came out which was directed by jj abrams who also created the story and uh was a screenwriter for that also produced by tom cruise and paula 
Mission Impossible 3, I got to be honest with you, I don't remember a whole lot of it because it was not my favorite. To be completely honest, there's uh, there's moments in there that were I mean, they had great acting moments. Don't get me wrong. Like they had um, rest in peace, Philip C. Seymour Hoffman. Oh, my gosh. I think he I, I feel as though if not for him, the movie would not have been as good as it was. That's my personal opinion. Anyway, there's a lot of movies. So let me keep going. Uh, Mission Impossible Ghost P- Protocol was the fourth one. That was directed by Tom Cruise, and I believe uh, his his producing partner, Paula Wagner, I think they had a split around this time. That came out five years later. Brad Bird, director Brad Bird. Oh, my God. Like, that guy. Love that guy. I do. I want to say he was the he's the one who did. Oh, what is that called? Um, Man, what is that? Did he do The Incredibles? I think he did The Incredibles. And I love The Incredibles. It is so good. So good. Anyway, Brad Bird did that one. Ghost Protocol was nice. And I feel as though that was truly the. Oh, and Christopher McQuarrie also was a screenwriter for that one. And I feel as though that was the one that kicked it up to another notch. Yes, the first two had espionage and everything else, but Ghost Protocol, I felt took it worldwide like it really made it feel like much a much grander the the stakes were a lot higher you know so I thought that was a good one loved that one after that the fifth one was Rogue Nation which was around the same thing Christopher McQuarrie came back this time as a screenwriter and a director and we're just going to speed past this because then he has screenwritten and directed Rogue Nation Uh, fallout which came out three years after that in 2018 and then dead reckoning which came out july of this year 2023 in case you're listening to this in the future 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 so that one was five years and i will say one thing i hmm i have enjoyed oh sorry i forgot to go into producing uh rogue nation was produced by tom cruise jj of course jj is going to produce that one it's uh, Brian Burke. Okay, I recognize that name. David Ellison, Dana Goldberg, and Don Granger. Once Christopher McQuarrie started screenwriting and directing solely, then it was Tom Cruise, J.J., Christopher McQuarrie, and Jake Myers. And then the last two, this one and then Dead Reckoning, which will be out next year, 2024, was written by Christopher McQuarrie and Eric Gendrison and produced by Tom Cruise and Christopher. I will say... That Christopher McQuarrie has this understanding of the of the franchise that really elevates it for me. Like I say, it, it becomes the stakes become so much higher once he got involved, which is around Ghost Protocol, and it's continued that. But one thing that I've that I have loved about the Mission Impossible series, there's a couple things. One thing, I love the loyalty to all of his fellow co-stars. Like they like a Simon Pegg, Bing Rain, 
Ving Rhames has been in there for I don't even know how many. I don't want to bore you guys by going back and seeing when they started. But it's been a long time. And I just love how they work together in their characters. And it's this continuation, this family. It's family. That's my uh, Vin Diesel impersonation. And what, speaking of Vin Diesel, what I think separates Mission Impossible and why I enjoy this franchise comparative to Fast and Furious is that, yes, it's it's espionage. So it has this like cool element and these grandiose stunts and and uh, car chases and everything. Right. But I still feel as though it's still grounded in the world of like shit we don't know that could be happening like this could be happening right now you know what i mean and then you have i, I don't even know what number i stopped watching fast and furious but i know they're like i was watching one of them and when the rock first of all like think tyrese was driving a lamborghini on a frozen damn lake or some shit like that and i was like what the fuck and then <laughs> and then the rock in the same film reached out of a i don't know a hummer or something that was also driving on this frozen lake and redirected a missile with his arm and hands and i was like i am fucking done with this series done i was in the movie theater and i thought what the fuck is next they're going to be in space like it just gets so egregious it's just it's crazy and then like the trailer for next one like vin diesel hopped I think the, the Burj Khalifa building or something like he hopped from building to building. I'm like, OK, this is exactly what I thought. This is why I'm not watching. But with Mission Impossible, it always has this somewhat grounded feel. Now, I will say they do have a tendency to be very exposition forward in the beginning of each film. Right. But I feel as though this franchise is one of very few franchises and films that can deliver exposition in a way that it's not boring. You know, and I think that has to deal with the fact that it is a spy type of feel, right? And 007, the James Bond franchise, doesn't necessarily do that correct. But that's, but I feel as though because of the way Ethan Hunt, the Tom Cruise character, receives the missions via tape, which they established in the first episode. And I, like I said, this TV series came out in 60, so I'm not sure if that was a bit from the series that they just continue into the film. It's so awesome. But that allows the exposition to unfold in a way where it's more, it feels a little bit more organic. That's just my opinion. Anywho, that's enough of that, um, of this introduction. I don't want to get it too long-winded. So let's go ahead and break it down. Like I mentioned already, uh, the director's Christopher, he wrote, directed, well, he co-wrote, excuse me, directed and produced Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It is rated PG-13, action-adventure thriller. Uh, the logline for it, according to IMDb Pro, says, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. That's my uh, in the world reading kind of thing like that. My voice isn't quite that deep. But anyway, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Chris from McQuarrie, like I said, I feel, man, this man understands the franchise 
and I um and 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 I feel as though he has a way of reinventing it as well. You know, the, when John Woo did his, it was very John Wooish. You know, his fingerprints were all over that. Uh, even the Brian De Palma one, his fingerprints I felt were all over it. some of his signature kind of feels and like you know the way he moves the camera sets the camera and then of course when jj did his because it's jj but mcquary i feel doesn't leave his imprint all over it or maybe it's just because i'm more familiar with his work of the mission impossible but i mean he did like edge of tomorrow because he likes working with tom cruise you know he was like the writer on that one and i feel as though it he tries to switch it up, but not too much. I, I don't feel as though his fingerprints are as visible as the first three that did it. So that's why I think he's a good, he was a great addition. Okay. So anyway, uh, I already talked about producers. The composer was Lorne Balfi. I uh, also did a Lego Batman movie, which is awesome. Megamind, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. So a lot of great things. The cinematographer was Mr. Fraser Taggart. Uh, looks like he did Edge of Tomorrow, another Tom Cruise movie, Doctor Strange, Rogue One. So he's done some some stuff, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm not super familiar with his what's name. I, now I will say he did Doctor Strange, the first one, but he was second unit DOP. So same thing for Edge of Tomorrow. So I guess I, I mean fairly like I'm looking at. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the stuff that he DP'd as the first unit. So this is like a big one for him to do first unit. So that's going to be kind of cool to see what he does with that. The editor is Eddie Hamilton. Cast and director Mindy Marin. And production designer is Gary Freeman. And let's see, you know, I like I said, I work as an onset dresser. So I'm always curious about production design and art department. So he's a production designer for Maleficent, Children of Men, which was so great. Sunshine, great. Oh, he was art director, excuse me. Art director for children, men, production designer for Maleficent. So, yeah, they got a stacked cast on here, man. Uh, well, crew, excuse me. Going into the cast, we had Tom Cruise, of course. We have Haley Atwell, which I believe is she the, um, was she in the the Marvel Universe? I think she was. Peggy Carter. Yeah, Peggy Carter. Yeah, that's what I thought. So. So, yeah, Haley Atwell's in there. The beautiful Haley Atwell. Ving Rhames, of course. I love it because I haven't seen him do anything, a whole lot of stuff. But he comes out and do these and he always kicks ass. And he's Ving Rhames. Anything he does is just awesome. Simon Pegg, who is talented writer, director himself. Rebecca Ferguson um, is in there. And of course, she was in Dune Part One, maybe Dune Part Two. Vanessa Kirby, who I absolutely love she's in the crown and of course she was in mission impossible fallout so her character has come back the rebecca ferguson characters coming back simon Pegg. these are all returning Haley atwell is the newest member of the cast joining the cast so far and then we have isa i might be messing name isai morales this guy i love him right because he was in a little known tv show with jason bateman called I am blanking right now. What is the name of that show? What is the name of that show? Why am I blanking? I just literally finished watching it. 
This is embarrassing, guys. Uh, don't, don't, you know, you know, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. It was on Netflix and it was a big deal. And Ozark. God dang it. Ozark. He was in Ozark and amazing, 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 amazing. Love that guy. He was so good, man. I'm not going to give any spoilers for anybody who's never watched Ozark. He's in Ozark. He's awesome. Let's just put it like that. But he's also been in some other things. And he's just a great freaking actor, man. I love his look. I love. I can't say enough about that guy. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. Those are some of the major players and returning people. So, yeah, we're going to go ahead. And like I said, this one's getting a little bit long. So I apologize. We're at 20 minutes. So it's not too bad. Uh, So, yeah. Thank you guys for for listening so far. We're going to watch the film. And then I'm going to come back and do some discussion about it. I let's talk about my expectations. I'm going to keep this pretty quickly. Oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. Never mind. I already said that. So my expectations, as I mentioned before, I, I, I enjoy McQuarrie's work, Tom Cruise, you know, I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise fan. And I know there are people that might be like, what? I like his work in the Mission Impossible series, I feel as though he knows that character. I mean, he's lived with it for, I don't even know, when did I say the first film came out? Like eons ago. So he's been with this character since 96, man. How many years is that? That's four. It's 2023 20, right now. God, 20, almost 30 years of being this character. Now, the question for me is. When. Will will there be a passing of the torch or will they just let this franchise in? Now, here's my thoughts. Because the way studios companies are, there's going to be if he can't do it anymore, if he's 90 because he's like 70 right now and still in pretty good shape and running like better than than my ass can run. You know what I mean? But um. I feel as though when he can't do it anymore, choosing not to do it, that they'll reboot it or whatever, which will that I think that'll be when it becomes like, okay, that's just too much. I would like it that if they did it and they just and then that's it and just let it be what it is. You know what I mean? But the way studio system set up is a money making machine. So they'll probably do some more after Tom Cruise is done with this. But I enjoy his Mission Impossible movies and. I. I've never really thought Tom Cruise was the best actor. I liked him in Jerry Maguire, like most people. One of my favorite films that Tom Cruise has ever acted in, personally, was Collateral with Jamie Foxx. And I think that was because it was so different than what he's done or usually does. And that's why I truly enjoyed that movie. Uh, He played a dark character. He's a dark assassin. If you haven't seen that, go watch it. Michael Mann directed that one. Freaking amazing. I think it was Michael Mann. Y'all don't 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 pull any of my filmmaker points if I was wrong on that one. Okay. But yeah. So anyway, I I'm expecting something amazing because one thing that's cool about Tom Cruise old ass is he still does his own stunts, which is commendable. I don't know what the studio feels about that with insurance rates and stuff of that nature. But yeah, I, I feel as though it would be enjoyable, enjoyable. It'll be a good popcorn movie and it'll be interesting to see what new stuff they've brought to the character, to the franchise. So I'm, I'm excited to watch it. I believe I'll end up enjoying it. Whether or not I'll be tired of it, we'll see. And 
Thank you guys so much. Let's go ahead and kick off for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. I watched this one in the movie in the theater, by the way. I forgot to say that. So thanks, guys. <laughs> and I'll catch you guys with the post-production segment. much for listening to the first segment of our movie review for mission impossible dead reckoning now i just want to give a little heads up as usual for our coming soon next week uh i'm excited about this one it's a film that i've kind of wanted to watch for a while uh it came out in 2022 it's called three thousand years of longing Oh, ho, ho, ho. I'm so excited to to watch this film and talk about it. If Oh, I George Miller, freaking Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton sold. Haven't even watched it yet. I'm so happy that I waited to watch it so I can discuss it with you guys and y'all can come along for the ride. So next next week. Sorry, I got excited again. Ah, next show, we're going to be discussing 3000 years of longing. Ooh, it's going to be a good one. Thanks, guys. And here's the uh, remainder of the episode, our part two post-production segment of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Hello, welcome back, folks, to the post-production segment of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me first of all that was a long movie <laughs> first just off the just wanted to say off the off the bat that was a super long movie time wise with that being said i think like i said i think it clocked in at 163 so two, what was it two it was like two hours and 40 minutes or something like that it was uh it was pretty long it was a long one but Let's go ahead. Um, let's start off. Let's let's break down Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One. So first off, <clears throat> I okay. Where do I want to start? Ooh, that's a good question. That's always the question. Where to start? I feel like for a film like this. You know, uh, let's just start with production design. <clears throat> I I liked it. Okay, and I don't mean that in in the sense of it was bad or anything. Because once again, this is one of those films that is supposed to be a reflection of our world and 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 what is possible. No pun intended. <laughs> Uh, but what's possible within our world. So it was very reflective of that. What I did like because production design is a part of that was um, the utilization of they man, they had some locations in this one. Uh, they were in Venice, uh, Abu Dhabi, and it was some it was some globe trotting happening for sure. 
And that was cool. <clears throat> Almost to... Once again, this is kind of what I said in the pre-production segment where once Macquarie took over, I truly feel as though he expanded the scope of what Mission Impossible is or, or what's to be expected. Once again, you know, and, and it's not so much of just, oh, it's got to be bigger and better, but to the point that it's got to make sense as well, too. And I, I, I like that. Like I said, I think they were in Rome. I think Venice, definitely Abu Dhabi. And I know they ended up in. Um, I don't know where they were for the motorcycle thing, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. OK, so, yeah, production design was was well done to the point that the I don't know how much they had to add for example the beginning the one of the first sequences of the film was in the desert uh and that was i love that look there's something like i don't know if i ever want to necessarily trek across the desert it might be kind of cool you know but to live in an environment like that always seems so harsh but utilizing the harshness of that environment, they capitalized in using the costumes and things of that nature. And what I loved about like the art direction or what have you was that each of these locations, even though because it was globetrotting all over the place, I feel as though the sets they used help to signify where they were if that makes sense or to to differentiate each place and it really helped to sell it granted i'm pretty sure they shot on location for the majority of all of this stuff right but yeah so that was always cool the the production design in the i forgot where they went to when they met vanessa kirby's character that was that was nice it was giving me low key John Wick vibes, kind of sort of. I think they were in Rome for that section, maybe. But that was nice, like the the fancy bar. And I feel as though it it's because whenever you're trying to do something upscale, how much of it do you do before it gets egregious? You know what I mean? So you have to fly that believability factor. And once again, like I said in the beginning in the pre-production segment, I feel as though even though the stunts and the car chases and everything else are a bit extreme, that the world itself is grounded. From a production standpoint, my favorite part was the train. Like each car had this interesting, excuse me, had this beautiful look and it, it, was, it was stylish i mean it made me want to like man i'll i would be a passenger on this train car so to me that was probably the most beautiful set piece of the entire film was the train car sequence and everything else it was just beautifully done the the rich royal blues that popped it it screamed elegant and 
it 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 almost made it feel otherworldly. And even though it's supposed to be grounded, otherworldly in the sense of these people and the stuff they are doing and what have you are outside of our normal purview. Like us normal people can't do it. And I feel as though it bordered on that where it was like it had that ritzy kind of feel, but it was like, oh, these places exist. You normally people can't come here, right? <laughs> so that's what I really liked about the production design. Like the train, oh my gosh, the design and uh, is just beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Probably one of my favorite train production designs and what have you. And I, like I watched the Orient Express, which was nice because then you like, OK, how many different ways can you do a train? But even like the what was the uh, the film with Brad Pitt? I forgot the name of that one or train to Busan. Like there's a lot of films with trains. So it's almost how do you separate yourself without doing it in an egregious manner where it's like I'm trying to be different. And I feel as though they accomplished that. And it fit within the the confines of the film. So production design, I, I can't I don't have anything against it, you know, and as far as the costuming, it was pretty much kind of sort of, you know. I forgot, what is that? What is that saying called when is par for the course for Mission Possible? Each character has its distinct looks. Oh, speak. Yeah, each character had a distinct look. The guy who plays Zolo. Oh my gosh, that crimson crushed velvet dinner jacket was beautiful. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, so yeah, it definitely had that look. I love as far as production design. I you know one of the things that I feel Dead Reckoning did was I feel as though it was a bit of a callback to the first one that Brian De Palma uh directed. To the point that, like I said, the second one was much more exotic. And this one, yes, they were globetrotting, but it was it didn't feel like sexy. You, you, you know, it, it wasn't like sexy globetrotting. It was globetrotting for the sake to serve the, 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 the story. And I thought that was cool. And part of probably outside of the train, as far as just production design would be the alley sequences in uh venice that man that it was it was beautiful i, I love the little boats on the what they, or the candles gondolas gondolas uh the boat the lights on the, the lanterns on the gondolas was a nice touch and even the power boats had these lights that was cool but then it had the alleyways were confining so had this bit of claustrophobia almost to in my opinion it reflected what his character was going was going through being put into this box and being squeezed on all angles you know and typically yeah his team goes rogue or what have you but i really felt for this one it really to me once again i feel like mcquarrie always finds a way to up the the stakes it felt like everything was coming against him and i feel as though they really succeeded in doing that with the alleyway shots and it had that gritty the 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 fog and the steam and it definitely to me was very reminiscent of that first first mission impossible you know it was grungier it had this grunge to it even though he's in the suit and everything it, it had this grunginess to it this dirty 
like underworldly the shit that happens in shadows feel so yeah from a location standpoint those alley sequences were amazing love those so yeah great job um the mission impossible score you know is always gray is always pending underneath anything that's kind of really going the sound design was once again i i don't mean to sound like I don't care about sound design because I definitely do. And I do feel as though they made some great choices in sound design for this one. Uh, the, for example, the, the jump sequence that Tom Cruise, 85 year old self actually did <laughs> off of a mountain. Okay. But like, I love the fact that they took the sound out in that particular sequence because it, made you almost hold your breath akin to what the character was doing even though you know that character was experiencing a lot of noise you know from the wind rushing and and Simon Pegg's Benji talking in his ear and maybe the sound of the train whistle so you know all these sounds were happening in the world but the focus his character had to have I don't know if that's why they chose to do that sound design in that way so I think it at least I feel as though they did it because of the focus he had to have but also for us I almost literally felt like my breath was sucked out of me. And I think dropping that sound out was part of that. I always love when a sound design is there and then it's accentuated when they remove that sound. Because to me, it just makes the visuals like when you're watching a film and you're hearing the sound and you're already in theater or whatever. So you, your, your senses are inundated with all of these, all the stimuli. Right. And then when shows or films cut out the sound or choose to limit the sound, I feel as though for me, at least it makes me connect to the visual of what I'm seeing that much. It, it makes it that much stronger for me. So I really like that. And I think it happened a couple, um, a couple times, the sound design, when uh, Rebecca Ferguson's character, Elsie, Elsie, when she passed, that was nice. It was touching. It was nice, soft and gentle. I really like it, man. I love the sound design that they, that they do. Also, like I know it's whatever. Uh, maybe <laughs> people might not agree, but like the tape, you know, the me this message will self-destruct in 30 seconds. I like that it's not over the top. Me personally, I do. It's just like this little the smoke and it's not crazy big you know always like that whole thing so sound design was great i think they made some great choices of when to give it to you and when to take it away from you so i love the sound design for it as far as i, I touched on costumes i costume excuse me i love once again every character has their own unique style whoever let me tell you Haley atwell's entire wardrobe was dope like dope as well not the airport thing the first she was just in jeans and a shirt whatever but after that like the pantsuit with the long coat dope i love that look it was amazing I'm like ooh, that that shit was cool and once again uh vanessa kirby's character the white widow i love just her her entire character design so that was cool but you know what let's use that as a great segue to talk about acting here Vanessa Kirby, love, 
love her performances and pretty much everything she does. She was in that, uh, oh, shoot. Wasn't uh, the Fast and the Furious spinoff or whatever. I don't even know what it's called. I was watching it in at my barber shop and I was like, this is stupid. But Vanessa Kirby was in there, I believe. And I was like, ooh, Vanessa Kirby. But man, she's so talented. What was cool about her was she was able to play two characters because Haley's Atwell character was wearing her face at one point in time. So not only did they do like, you know, costume changes, but her demeanor and everything was so well done. The subtle differences where she almost was taking she was a essentially a different person on the train sequence. That train sequence to me is is dope. But that was super cool to see her do, you know, work her magic. I love Benji's like ecstatic neuroticism paired with Luther's stoic calmness. You know, I always I love seeing those two act across from each other because it's just this dynamic, you know, of the two characters <laughs> with Benji being a little spastic almost, but he always comes in clutch. And then Luther's just like, chill, man, I got this. So <laughs> that's my Bing Rames. That's my second impersonation. Hopefully that one's better. But yeah, I always love whenever they're in a, it's just their chemistry with those two characters just brings me, it's so entertaining to watch them work. I love it. Love it. Love it. Let's see. So yeah, Everybody kicked ass. Of course, Asai Morales, I told you, man, that man who played Gabriel in the film can do no wrong. He just has this cold. I don't even know how like he doesn't rush. There's no rush for what he's going to say. And I love it. And it makes you almost drip and hang on to every word he says. But I can't stop talking about the acting and the characters or should I say I can't go to the next thing without bringing up the fact that Mr. Henry Cerny or Zerny sorry C-Z-E-R-N-Y was back as Kittredge I was so freaking excited like I was in there like oh I get excited about films clearly Mr. Kittredge in case you guys haven't seen the original Mission Impossible was the head guy in the first Mission Impossible, he was the one talking to Cross from Ethan when he was like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah, you kind of fucked up. Shit's going down, blah, blah, blah. And then he was like, oh, really? And then Ethan, Tom, squished the gum into his hand, threw it against the aquarium, it exploded. And it was all this awesome, badass looking shit that that was the guy Kittredge. And I love the fact they brought him back 30 years from now. I was super excited about it. And he kicked ass because, man, he has this. His, I mean, he's clearly supposed to be a good guy, clearly, right? But he has this, I'm a nice guy. Like, if you, the way he portrays the character where he's nice, but he has this underpinning, like, I'm a screw you over the first moment. And I love it. And I was so happy to see him back. So happy. And I'm hoping that he's in the uh, part two, Dead Reckoning part two. So that was a nice surprise. Like I said, I don't watch the trailers often for these and i didn't watch it for this one so that was a welcome surprise to see him re what's that word called when they come back and reprise reprise especially since it was 30 years ago that was so cool so cool anyway uh, and i i did like the paris character the palm palm her real name is palm clementif i believe or clementif 
And she was in Guardians of the Galaxy, Old Boy, the 2013 version, and Avengers and stuff. And I like her character. I, I'm liking that they put these the women, these badass women as like the right hand man, for lack of better terms. You can't see the air quotes I'm doing. I like that they're like the badasses, right? It's kind of cool to me. What I what I'm not and I get it because, nope, you know what I was about to say? I'm not a big fan that they don't speak a whole lot. But I guess technically, like, you know, the old 007, the right hand man of the villain would often be the silent, strong type. But what I thought was cool about her character, Paris, for this one is she was a silent badass like she was fucking Ethan up in the alley that I spoke of earlier. So she had this like. Ah, uh, what's I, not? I'm not trying to be sexist, but she had like this sexy, like attractiveness that can lure somebody in and then fuck you up. And I thought that was cool. But what I did really, really like about her character was that she was able to show she wasn't just you know you have like the strong, silent right hand man. He's just the badass. Then he just dies, and then that's it. But I love that they allowed her to show more range that's that's what i was looking for so she was able to be vulnerable as well i thought that was a nice touch because with the right hand man of like who's an actual man they don't really get a chance to be vulnerable i wish they did that would be cool but I, I did like that touch that was nice i was a little um taken aback by rebecca ferguson's character dying that i was not expecting that um else ilsa i mean she was supposed to be dead and thing. But then again, to be honest, I am kind of surprised that her character stayed in the franchise as long as she has. I thought she would have been killed off a little sooner. But and I don't mean that in a bad way, because I love her acting and she's great. But I'm just surprised. But they let her go out in a badass fashion. So that was cool. I will say that this, you know, one of my issues with 007 is that normally like i said earlier he's a bit of a womanizer so it's normally like the woman he's always going to have sex with the woman or get in a relationship with the woman and i guess ethan kind of does that sometimes i think he and rebecca were, had a thing but i can't remember if the white widow and ethan hunt had a thing or it was just flirtiness i can't remember i want to say it was just flirtiness anywho but i did like that the women in this were, were badasses like Rebecca Ferguson's character was a badass Vanessa Kirby in the first one she didn't do too much badass now but she's a woman in power that's cool like I said Paris was a badass uh, uh Haley Atwell's character now she did get her ass beat a couple of times but she had some nice little moves and stuff too but also she was smart so I really loved the way and it would be so interested you know, interesting to hear what other women have to say about the female characters in this. But I, I liked that they were able to handle business. Hell, in the beginning of the film, Rebecca Ferguson's character like saved Ethan's hunt as a couple of times <laughs> with that that big ass sniper rifle. So, I, and then she fought Gabriel, lost, but she was fighting the shit out of this man. So I really like how the female characters in this one aren't weak. I thought that was so cool. So, so cool. Yeah. Anywho. This, see, this is why I do this without 
scripting it is so I could just get lost in the admiration or lost in how lost I am at a film. But anyway, the acting, like I said, Tom Cruise always, man, he, 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 he knows his character. This character is Tom Cruise at this point, you know, and I already touched on Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg's character. So I already kind of touched on the acting. No weak links in here in this film. There was not one single person that I was watching and was like, mm, I don't want to see more of you or, uh, you know, so there, there's there's that, you know, I did like what's his name? Uh, was Shay Shay Wigman or whatever. He was the guy who was hunting Ethan Hunt. I will say, OK. I enjoyed his character. But I didn't. I didn't quite understand his character because I can't remember him in a previous film or he might have been, but I don't readily recall him being in there. And I feel and I know he's supposed to be the face of the government that was hunting Ethan, I guess. But I feel is the only thing the the one thing I would say I was like a little iffy on was his character. And it wasn't because of his performance, because I loved his performance, but his character it made it seem to me as though he and Ethan had history and I don't remember them being him being in another previous film. If, if if I forgot about it, then I apologize. But the character presentation to me made it seem as though he and Ethan had history. Like he's like this, this motherfucker always breaking the rules and doing what he wanted to do. And we all got to follow rules. You know, he was giving me that kind of vibes. As opposed to somebody who's like, hey, I need you to get a team together to go hunt this dude down because he keeps breaking rules and he just happens to know of him. Or is he is his, you know, his doctrine so much so like everybody needs to follow the law, period, you know, and I think that would have made it more satisfying either a by him having history or you got to follow the law, period. When he essentially listened to Ethan and led all the passengers to the back of the car. So that's that's my one nitpick about it. You know, once again, it was still well acted, but the character, I was like, okay. Now, let's move on. I was talking about acting for (laughs) characters for a while. Uh, As always, Macquarie, man, he writes and directs action like no one else. He is by far one of my favorite action directors right now. And that's not, I mean, like, honestly, I can't even think of another person who consistently delivers. Now there was more car chase sequences, which has become a thing in every mission impossible. And admittedly, I was sitting there like, okay, here we go. Another car chase sequence it did go really really long i was like okay guys that's enough but i will say this this particular scene car chase scene did stick out a little bit more than previous ones in the previous previous films of the franchise but also other franchises in the fact that this isn't a comedy right but i like how they peppered the comedy the awkwardness of meeting Haley Atwell's character within the car chase. And I think it feel like they broke up some of the beats with comedic bits. And I think that helped 
break it up so it didn't seem as long and monotonous. Not saying that the car chase was monotonous, but a car chase is a car chase, you know. And we know he rides, but like I think on the last one, he was riding a motorcycle. That was a fan. That the last Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise on that motorcycle, that shit was so dope. So it was almost like, okay, well, we seem to ride a motorcycle. We seem to drive a car really cool. What are we going to do now? And I think that's why they chose to handcuff him that game. A little extra conflict. And the choreography on that was really cool. So great job, everybody involved. And they decided to pepper in some comedy, even with the small yellow Fiat, which was not what you expect for a super spy to drive. But then he also like surprised you a little bit because like you think of Fiat and no, this is some supercharged, crazy Fiat kind of thing. So that was cool. That was nice. The way they broke it up. And I don't. I don't want to I don't think they necessarily broke the mold in the sense of some cool car thing that I haven't seen before, you know, like. Uh, oh, man, what is the name of that driver? Is that what it's called? Baby driver, like baby driver. I saw like that. The car chasing that were phenomenal. <laughs> so they didn't like create anything new with the car chase on here but i like how they peppered in the comedic bits that was nice and it broke up the length of it as far as the stunt work the stunt work is always good i do the fight with henry cavill's character was in the uh man the um the other guy who worked for the widow uh, i'm sorry i'm getting his name the bathroom fight that was fantastic and there wasn't as much of that in this one. And I don't know if it's because of Tom getting older. Now, he did have the the alleyway fight with Paris character and one of the henchmen, which was gave you that claustrophobic. Everything's closing in around him. And I thought that fight was good. But I think why I prefer the fight with Henry Cavill and the other guy who was because that was more consistent and you can see everything they did. You can see the time they put into it. And it all was character work, right? That fight sequence in the bathroom was also telling a story about the characters. And I love that aspect of it. This one, the fight sequences, I feel were just like, okay, he has to get out of this somehow. You know, even when the gates were closing, he was in the alley fighting. The cutaways didn't keep me invested in the fight as much. I would have just rather seen a longer fight with Isla's character with Gabriel or see the Tom, but I get that was happening to him. So I get why it happened. I just feel as though the fights to me now Isla's fight was better than Tom's. I think in the uh, Rebecca Ferguson, I don't know. I need to either talk to him by character name or by actor name. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> so sorry about that. But uh, Rebecca's Ferguson's character, Isla, and then watching Issei, Isai and his character, Gabriel, fight, I think that would have been cool. You know what? I'm just put a pin in it. I'm just, I'm going I'm to solve this right now. From now on, pre-production segment, I will refer to the actor. And then after that, it will be character going forward. So that we won't be flip floppy. So I apologize, guys. Boom. Going forward, that's what's going to happen. But um, back to the film. So the fight sequences weren't as good to me and that's because i feel as though they weren't telling a lot of story i already assumed 
that Isla was going to die. They made it very apparent with Gabriel's character. One of y'all got to die, and we know we got up the stakes, and we just introduced Hayley Atwell's character, so we know she's not going to die. Is she going to be the new person because she has all these skills, which they really, during the first, you know, five, ten minutes of exposition or whatever, and they were talking about, oh, we remember, we recruited you because of your skills and your blah, 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 so we didn't give you a choice. Well, you had a choice. You know, the whole thing of choice. And then they introduce Hayley Atwell's character, who is a bad person. She's a thief, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, okay, we already know where this is going. So you already knew that Isla, Rebecca Ferguson's character, was going to die. So there wasn't a whole lot of, to me, a whole lot of conflict in that. Because you weren't like, oh, no. It was like, okay, yeah, of course she's, of course she's going to die. You know, of course. And then them tying it in with... The first time uh, in the first Mission Impossible when the, the young woman died and then bringing back that Isla and Ethan had a bit of a connection, you know, so you knew where that was going. So I feel as though the stakes weren't as high for that fight. And we also know Ethan was going to be withheld long enough. So that's why. And of course, like the last one, the bathroom in the previous film we figured Ethan was going to win, but it was still telling the story between his fighting style, the underworld guy, and Henry Cavill's character. And that's where it was cool. And that was a vicious fucking fight. Like, vicious. <laughs> like, everything looked like it hurt. I think, I think they were saying something about that they told that the guy, they told him to really kick him or something like that so they can feel it. I don't know. But that fight was, that was one of my, one of my favorite fight sequences of any film that also told the story of like, especially contemporary film, like in a big franchise, that fight sequence stole it. These two were okay. Well choreographed, but I don't think it lended its hand to the story. There's one thing you can say about Tom Cruise, right? And he is one of the last action stars that we have. For better or for worse. It's uh, it's crazy to me. Like, I'm sorry, that was a realization. <laughs> but like, you know, you have Vin Diesel and everything, but that's not really... You know, I thought Vin Diesel was going to be a bigger action star or what have you. But the Fast and Furious movies, I feel kind of kill that. Yes, it's an action movie, but I don't. I mean, I guess so. I guess technically. But Vin Diesel's pretty up. I mean, he's not, you know, 105 like Tom Cruise. <laughs> I just keep switching his age. He just jumps up and down. He's going to be a thousand years old by the end of this podcast. Sorry. But... <laughs> So he's not as old as Tom Cruise. So I guess he's an action person. But I, when I mean, you know, I guess there are people that will put them in the same category. But Tom Cruise is like old school. Like. I don't even I. Ah, that's what I'm, you know, and it's not and I and I mean, not even just his character, Ethan. I mean him. As. A super the superstar that he is. Like, 
as much money or whatever his net worth is. And once again, like I say, he's pushing 115. So he doesn't have to do these stunts. I think he does it for a couple of reasons. I'm, I don't know. I'm just going to I'm going to make some I'm going to surmise a couple of things here. One, I do feel as though he's a person who likes learning new stuff and doing new things. And more importantly, he's probably a bit of a thrill seeker where that adrenaline gets him. You know what I mean? And then fold that in with the fact that it is going to be entertaining as fuck for us. And that's what I mean about him being one of the last action stars where it's about. It is about. The movies. Like, I know that sounds corny. You can't watch this like watching this on Netflix or Hulu or wherever the hell it'll end up going. I don't know uh, what production company it's with or under. But for anybody who didn't see it in the movie theaters. It's not going to be the same. I'm sorry, it's just not. This is the type of movie that you have to see on the big screen in order to get the full impact. Like that jump and how expansive that was. And like I said earlier, they dropped the sound out. Like my breath was taken away because that shit was it was real. It was on location. And this is what once again, I don't <laughs> I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise acting fan. But as a cinephile, man, I, you, movies like this aren't happening that much. And, you know, I, I'm I, hopefully I'm going to do I, I will. I'm going to do a special occasionally here and there where I just want to get other cinephiles or filmmakers on here. We're just going to discuss films. It's going to be like a little special one off episodes here and there. I just decided that just now. Boom. Live. But. Films like this are becoming less and less, right? Films that are shot on location, in beautiful locations, in exotic locations, in places you don't see. Now, because it is cheaper for the studios, and that means they make more money, the P&L and all this other stuff, they're shooting on location or those huge digital CGI backdrops. Like they do for uh, what's the, the Star Wars uh, prequel thing that's on Disney. I'm sorry, I don't Disney. So I don't watch that one. But The Mandalorian, that's what it's called. And I know they use the CG background a lot. But I I feel as though it's a lost magic in shooting on location. Because for for us as an audience member, right? And this is somebody who works, who I, I work in the industry and building my career in this industry. But growing up, when I saw stuff like that, you knew it wasn't a computer, a gener computer generated thing. Somebody put in the work to build this or to travel over there and scout it and then plan it and then talking to the governments and blah, blah, blah. And us, yes, we're going to watch a film and it's just the suspension of disbelief when we're watching it. But in the back of our little, you know, human brains, we know that this is still real or pretty real or closer to real than CGI, you know. And that is what made the 
like the train sequence. I keep talking about that. I just love that sequence. But it wasn't just the cars and the acting from Vanessa Kirby in Paris. It was everything that pl- that plush green with the craggly gray in the clouds like that. It was, it was it was fucking beautiful, man. And that's falling by the wayside for CGI stuff. And like I said, we can go watch it. We since we know like Tom Cruise, he's gonna go on location. He's not gonna shoot no he's not gonna shoot this shit on a soundstage CGI. You know what I mean? So we know that. Even if you don't watch like nerd out about stuff like you or whomever's listening, I feel as though a lot of people who are aware of Mission Impossible thing and Tom Cruise as an actor know that that's a real. And I think our brains, we can tell, you know, like the uncanny valley that you get with human or human CGI characters. Our brains can tell they're like, oh, and there's some there's a unspoken connection, you know. And. This is going to be sad when. If that doesn't continue, if there aren't directors like McQuarrie and Tom Cruise as a producer and the Christopher Nolan's and Quentin Tarantino's. But like they're put like everything like, I mean, if you take Wakanda, for example, you know, shy in Atlanta (laughs) and Black Panther, they didn't go to Africa. At least I don't believe so. If, If so, somebody email me, tell me I'm wrong. But they didn't go to Africa to shoot any of that or something akin to Africa. It was all built. It was beautiful. Don't get me wrong. But that's what excites me about being an actor is that, I mean, aside from creating characters and the study of human psychology and thought, it's also being able to go to places that you might not otherwise go to, even if it's like some small town in the middle of whatever. Was you know a normal person may not have gone through that thing, but being an actor, you get to see this thing, different things, and you get to experience these different cultures and these different vistas. That that like the desert, they went to the desert. Like unless I go to Nevada desert or wherever you know deserts are in America, but still, what's the chance of me just driving there just to go see a desert if I'm an actor? That's what excites me. And Tom Cruise is one of those people that brings that every time and i feel like he and mcquarrie put that into this film that mountain stunt the the motorbike jumping thing which is what this whole conversation stemmed off of it was fucking cool man like i want to say there were times uh in the during watching this and okay we're at 41 minutes i'm trying to make sure i don't go over too much uh, <laughs> there were times in this film that I legit caught myself like holding on to my seat or like if my, you know, feet or, or hands were crossed, then there's just a little bit of tension in it until the scene ends. And then I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't even realize like that happened numerous times during this film. I'm not even going going to lie. I'm not going to lie. It was and it was dope. It was cool. I can't remember the last time I had that experience watching a film. This is me talking right now. So let me go back and try to think about it again. But in a movie theater, 
once again, watching it on a small screen that's your TV, I understand the convenience of it. And I mentioned it in the They Clone Tyrone episode that I think They Clone Tyrone would have been fantastic. Oh, my God. On a big screen, that film would have been amazing. Amazing, man. And I just feel as though there are some films that are best seen in the theater. And as much as we all like streaming or what have you. It's taking that away, you know, and part of the the movie going experience is also you watching a film with strangers and you all feeling the same thing all at the same time. And then you all go back to your lives and you may never see that person again or you might and not even know you shared that experience with them. That's so fucking cool to me. And that's what I love about acting and love about films. And that is what I loved about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. It was a movie, you know, it, it's. And like I said, I don't remember seeing one in a while. It was what I assumed, like I didn't watch Jaws in the movie theaters. That was before my time. But, you know, Jaws was like one of the first big summer blockbuster. movies. I don't think summer blockbuster, the term really existed until Steven Spielberg's Jaws, you know, and I feel as though that is what this film did. I did not see maverick top gun maverick the second one so i didn't see that so i'm sure it was the same thing because it's tom cruise you know so i'm assuming they're similar in that vein but yes this is a summer movie to me and you 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 know ethan's going to more than likely win because it's about him so there's never like oh is he gonna die right now it's never that thought process but i do like and it's probably because it is espionage franchise that they can put these twists and turns in there and it won't be like, oh, of course, they can layer multiple things and kind of sway, feign right and go left because of being espionage without it being hoaxy or like, oh, yeah, of course, a doy, you know, and. Yeah, it's just a great popcorn film, guys. It's nearing the end. So because uh, I could just keep talking about this film. I really fucking enjoyed this film. I can't wait to see part two. Now, here's going to be the determining factor will be when I go watch Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning part two. What I feel about that, because this was a part one. Right. And honestly, oh, you know what, guys, I didn't really talk about the whole Dead Reckoning. That might have to be a whole different thing. It, pretty much. Sorry for those. It's a and tell me if I should include what happened in a thing. But I feel as though if people are listening to this, that they saw it. But, you know, maybe not. That might be OK. Once again, I told you I'm learning and growing with this, with how I'm doing this. OK, so I think, yeah, after this one, we're going. I might have to change my my way of doing that. I might have a pre-production segment. Come back afterwards. Give a brief overview of the movie maybe but i don't you know and then go into my breakdown i just might define the shortest sweetest way of saying it so that way because i don't want to be 20 minutes of me giving every twist and turn in a damn movie you know i think that would be kind of blah and it's i'm hoping that a lot of you guys watching it well listening have watched the film 
you know, like, what does this guy Jay Starks got to say about it? <laughs> so or friends and family or you heard about it from somebody, somebody told you about it. So that's what I'm kind of hoping. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll figure it out. I might have to do a little brief overview. Dead Reckoning was the name of the AI thing that was the essentially the main antagonist of the film is that there's this AI code that became sentient and started manipulating things around the world because it's pretty much unfucking stoppable. Like it went to U.S. Treasury, kicked, didn't even kick in the door, like just walked in the front you know, walked around the U.S. Treasury like, bye, and then went to, like, the CIA online thing. We're like, hey, what's up? And they were like, oh, shit, how'd you get here? And he was like, bye, and they can't do shit about it, essentially. So he was just, you know, crashing different parties of highly classified shit around the world and just saying, and you motherfuckers can't catch me. So the world is like, oh, shit, get the keys to go find this sentient uh, Terminator, possible Terminator, they can literally walk into any government. We got to stop this shit. But it's not in the sense that we got to stop because it's bad for the world and the population. But more so like we got to stop this so we can control it so we can control other people naturally. So that's essentially oh, that was that was a kind of a good summary. <laughs> so that's essentially what Dead Reckoning is. It's this AI thing that everybody wants, which is once again, this one felt more worldly and like everybody was against them. And I think that was part of the point since the scale of this one is supposed to be much bigger this isn't like one bad guy has a couple files Ah, oh, it's whoa the whole world can be impacted by this one fucking key and ai thing so when i do part two that's going to be the question my biggest question now is will splitting it into two films have been necessary That's the question. Or was it just a money grab like Harry Potter and the Twilight ending? So I guess we'll check. What do y'all think? What do you think will be the how how will part two feel? Because if this was good, part two ideally has to be a little bit better and keep getting better. And you got to somehow bring almost six hours of story into a conclusion that feels natural, good, not forced, not stupid, no doses ex machina kind of shit, you know? So yeah, will part two be worth it? I enjoyed this one. Part two, you gotta, you really gotta nail it. <laughs> Anyways, thank you guys. I apologize. This one was ran a little bit long, kind of like this movie. And then maybe that's the natural order of things like a longer movie will unfortunately maybe have a longer breakdown. I don't know, but I really appreciate you guys for listening to this episode because of its length. Uh, do me a favor. Since you listen this whole time, go ahead. Give me a rating. Five stars. Bow. You know, it'll be like rewarding me and yourself because you feel good. Like, you know what? I listened to this guy, Jay Starks, just ramble on about his love for cinema for however many hours I need to make the make it worth it for myself. And then when you hit that five star, then you'll feel good about making me feel good. It's full circle. Tell your friends, tell your family. Thanks guys for listening to <laughs> flicks and scripts with Jay Starks. I'm Jay Starks. I love you guys. Make sure to go out, create man.
Make art. Share it with the world. Bye.